Hello and welcome to the Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 170th episode, our guest is Thomas Frank. Thomas Frank is the author of Listen, Liberal, Pity the Billionaire, The Wrecking Crew, and What's the Matter with Kansas? A former columnist for the Wall Street Journal and Harper's, Frank is the founding editor of The Baffler and writes regularly for The Guardian. He lives outside Washington, D.C. His new book, The People Know, A Brief History of Anti-Populism, was published Tuesday. And now on to the show. Been a long time coming. Uh, <laughs> I've read a lot of your work <laughs> in the time. Is that right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm very familiar. Uh, I'm a big fan. Uh, and now, can uh, you can you hear me all right? Yes. Yeah, you sound great. I've got great. this weird uh, headset where I can't hear my own voice, and it's really um, annoying to me. <laughs> I can hear you just fine. So, um, yes, thank you so much for doing this and taking the time. I really appreciate it. No problem. So, um, for people who don't know, uh, who, could you tell a little bit about yourself? Just introduce yourself. Oh. Yeah, so I am a, a writer and a, I guess you'd say a journalist. Um, used to be, well, I don't want to say I used to be uh, a historian because I never really was. I mean, I, I have a PhD and all that, but I'm not, uh, I've never been a professor at a university. Well, I've, I've learned it. a lot from your books. Yeah. Um, you write a lot about history, so I, give yourself credit. I, I think you're a historian. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, learn, I learn a lot from your from your work. So, um, But uh, yeah, so uh, let's see. The first book I read of yours was, I uh, just want to start there because I have to, um, you know, What's the Matter with Kansas? And uh-huh. such a great idea for a book. Um, just right off the bat. You're obviously from Kansas. I'm from I'm, Indiana. I'm not only from Kansas. I'm in Kansas right now. No kidding. <laughs> wow. Okay. See, I thought you'd be like ensconced in like some uh, you know coastal place right now. So. Uh, well, I, I I live in the my family and I live in the suburbs of Washington, but mm-hmm. um, f- uh, I've come out here to be with my dad during um, during the COVID. You know, during the epidemic. Right. Definitely. Well, is everyone safe and healthy? I hope. Oh yeah, we're yes, we're being very careful. You know, okay. He's uh, he's 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 ninety one. <laughs> oh my so gosh. Have, yeah, so we have to be real real careful. Absolutely. Well, good, good. That's good to hear. Well, I'm in Indiana, uh, born here, raised here, lived in California for a couple of years and England for a couple of months. But other than that, pretty much my whole life in Indiana. So Indiana, right, it's, a, it's a vertical Kansas. It's just the same thing. Kansas, I love it's it. The same thing flip, <laughs> flipped on its side, you know. <laughs> yes, I would agree. Very much so. Um, but yeah, so I relate a lot to your work on that level. You know, it, it is interesting how you... Uh, you set everything up because uh, going back even further, when I first read uh, Howard Zinn's A People's History of the United States, one of the most shocking facts to me was that the hotbed of socialist and uh, I think it was like the, the the highest number of registered like socialists in America was per capita was Oklahoma. That's uh, right. And yeah. there there were some of them were actually famous. There was a. Uh, um... There was a newspaper editor from some town in Oklahoma who was who was nationally known. He was a respected guy. It's all all that memory is, you know, it's all been wiped clean. It, but even before that, Kansas was synonymous with radicalism. Uh, mm. the, you know, this is where John Brown made his name and then uh, where the Populist Party got its start. 
And uh, I was reading it. Well, you've you've read the people know, but one of the the little strange little uh, anecdotes that I tell in there is this short story by Kipling, who lived in America in the 1890s. And he tells this story about uh, 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 horses on a farm. The horses can talk and we can listen to them. And and it's like it's like Orwell's Animal Farm, only with the Mm. politics the reversed po- politics and uh there's the horses are all you know the hard working they know their place you know they're sort of like mm. I- ideal proletarians right and and then a, a horse from kansas shows up <laughs> and mm. he's like this he's like this born troublemaker you know and he's spouting all of this kind of uh you know uh jeffersonian french revolution kind of rhetoric mm-hmm. and the other the other horses hate him <laughs> mm-hmm right that's that's so interesting yeah well i mean indiana's kind of the same way too in that you know this is where eugene v debs is from kurt vonnegut some of the greatest humanists and socialists we've ever seen on the face of the earth come from my neck of the woods but you wouldn't know that you know looking at the moral map these days but uh, we'll, we'll get to that eventually i'm sure but um but you know the the idea that you have, uh, if I may be so bold as to summarize your work a little bit, um, you know, y- you basically say that in one of your points is that the modern Republican Party has adopted the language of um, the working class socialist uh, of your, but they've reappropriated it in from an economic message into a cultural message. Like they've, the, 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 the battlefield is now cultural and we feel that same, you know, which side are you on, or which side (laughs) are you on brother? You know, I know, but it's just like, uh, it's like in your face today. It's so, it's so massively annoying. And, uh, now Trump at first seemed to be, uh, sort of pushing the boundaries of that formula. And he remember he was promising in 2016 that he was going to do all of this uh, great stuff for uh, for for working people. And he, he did he did none of it. <laughs> I mean, it's just culture war, right? That's it's just it's, like yeah. this new and even more insane culture war than ever mm-hmm. before. It's just like, good lord, we've made we've made the epidemic into a culture war. Like, what? Amazing. What kind of a who does that? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like I used to say: if something cataclysmic happened, it was like the you know meteors coming we got to get everyone together to, to fight it like maybe that would bring us all together but i don't even know if that's true anymore like i feel it would still be politicized like meteor fake news <laughs> yeah it's just it's just crazy anyhow that's where we are mm-hmm. oh yeah for sure um but yeah that that was a great that was a great book i really enjoyed it um yeah you, you kind of you definitely like you said there there's a real radical past uh, that we shouldn't be so quick to forget about. And, you know, it's it's kind of like like the middle of the country. It's very much like this tug of war. It's like like you said, it's bloody Kansas, you know, people rushing there to assert whatever. And I just I feel like such a tension in the middle of the country. Uh, don't you? I mean, there's there's such a today on my daily bike ride. Um, I did see a guy drive by in a pickup truck flying an enormous Blue Lives Matter wow. um, uh, flag. Yeah. Wow. And uh, yeah. And of course, it was a pickup truck. And of course, and as I, uh, you know, I drove. I was riding through a fairly um, affluent suburb of Kansas City, and in, in all the, you know, the, all the, uh, uh, the, the yards of the affluent homes were little Black Lives Matter. Uh, so you know, the, uh, you know, the the uh, 
the signs, right? So, mm-hmm. so there's your oh god, there's your your upside down, you know, political culture war of our time. Yeah, absolutely. And it's like it's like you say, it's all symbolic victories. It doesn't none of this oh, means it's, anything. It's just all I in know, our minds. I know. Yeah, <laughs> right. Except for the poor guy that gets killed by the cop, right? That you know, well, of course, absolutely. Really. Yeah, no and doubt. And also, I mean, the idea of making the coronavirus into a oh well let, let's not talk about this it just makes me mad <laughs> <laughs> that's okay i mean this is but they're gonna learn right this is i i trump is gonna go down so hard this well i shouldn't say that either because Don't who the hell who the kidding. hell knows <laughs> oh my gosh yeah absolutely um but to get into your yeah. To your yeah but but get let's get let's get to a more fun topic your new book yeah. uh, uh yeah. people uh no yeah it, i just finished it tonight uh so yeah it's fresh in my mind and uh, it's it's very interesting because it talks about the word populism in a way that I kind of hope that people think more deeply about that term than I think people usually do. There's a very yeah. knee-jerk definition of what it means, and it has a very specific meaning in history, and, and it's kind of gotten perverted over time. So Yes, and I thought – you know, I started out with this book just um, – uh, I was just going to tell the, the sort of the, my personal understanding of what populism is and how it developed. And I, I did tell that story in the book. But what was far more interesting to me was what you just described. How did the word come off the rails? Mm-hmm. How, you know, how did populist, you know, and I, I traced, by the way, where it was invented, where the word was invented. It's about, you know, 20 miles from where I'm sitting right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some guys on a train between Kansas City and Topeka came up with uh, this word. But how did this word go from meaning, you know, uh, the left wing radical farmer labor party of their day, the good guys? Mm-hmm. To, to meaning, you know, right wing demagogues, you know, racist uh, would be dictators. How, how the hell did that happen? Mm. And 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 that history became far more interesting to me. Uh, uh, and I, uh, you know, I, I, I've been rereading the book the last few days and it's uh, it just jumps out at me. It's really an amazing story how that how that came to pass. But today, if you open up your um New York Times or your Washington Post, that's how the word is used. It's just mm. used, you know, as though there was no problem with that. As though that, you know, that was perfectly mm. acceptable to uh, a populist is a is Trump. Right. Well, I mean, uh, I guess I didn't realize that it was a capital P populist party at one point. Proper noun actually existed as a party. I, I guess I just didn't put that together. I always thought it was just kind of something you called somebody you know i didn't never think it had any basis in that but it but it did it was a very real like you said it's concerned with with the actual what the people you know like on a, yeah. on a real economic level not just right and and they don't yeah. and and there's historians have have studied populism i mean there's so many 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 works on uppercase p populism the or the people who made up the word uh and i mean Long story short, none of the stereotype of today, uh, it doesn't apply to them. I mean, almost none of it, uh, you know, very limited pieces here and there, but it, it basically has nothing to do with them. What happened was there was a famous historian in the 1950s who was frightened by McCarthyism and decided to use the name of 
the populist party and make it into a generic term for what was wrong with uh, working class movements that were mm. all working class movements were essentially were uh, were like were like McCarthyism. They were authoritarianism mm. waiting to happen. Mm. And uh, he succeeded. His redefinition of the term uh, took off and his work was later. I mean, not all that long later, like like five years later, was uh, uh, just massively refuted. You know, mm. other historians went and, and checked everything, and it was he was wrong on just about every count. Mm. It was you know extraordinary. He was I've it, massively disproven. But here's what's weird, Rob. That didn't make any difference. Mm. His sort of uh, reconfiguration of populism, uh, uh, it stuck in people's minds. And it carried mm -hmm. the day. And mm -hmm. you got to this point like 10 years later where uh, Europeans basically – Europeans don't – have never heard of the Populist Party from Kansas in the 1890s. They've never heard of that. All they know is this red redefinition of the word where it means like basically fascist. Mm. And, and uh, yeah, and so that's how they they used it, and they got it from this this uh, American historian who 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 did this deliberately for reasons that I speculate on in the people know. Anyhow, fascinating story. It's really interesting. Mm -hmm. But uh, it was interesting. Can that... I tell you why it, yeah. why I think it's it's so important? Absolutely. Why it's so interesting? Because sure. it what this historian did in the fifties. I should tell you his name, by the way. His name was Richard Hofstadter. Okay, I thought that's who you were talking about, but I thought yeah. maybe I missed it because he wrote the paranoid style, style in American politics, which is exactly. what I knew him from exactly. uh, previously. And, so. and and my and I'm trying and my the object in this book is to sort of reverse his worldview. Mm. So interesting. Now I got to go read that. Now I haven't read that yet. So yeah. Uh, well, I I I was when I was younger, I was inspired by Hofstadter. He's the greatest uh, writer uh, of American history that we've, uh, the greatest writer uh, of among American historians wow. ever. It's amazing. So you, and, you still think his work is worthwhile, even though. Uh, oh yes. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Okay. He had, he was obsessed with populism though. And, Wait, mm. look, let me put it this way. There is a paranoid style. Yeah, that's <laughs> you know, why it, I was always interested exists. in that book. I was like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it exists. It exists. And there were, uh, uh, you know, uh, people who who were associated with populism who were who fit that definition. But here's the funny thing. Like, it, it was an enormous movement. It had millions and millions of people involved in it. You know, it, not there's only a handful of them that fit that definition. And there was at the same time, there were plenty of Republicans that were, you know, part of the paranoid style too. to try to single out populists as the bearer of it is is ridiculous. But the idea itself is true. I mean, yeah, there is a paranoid style. It's really interesting to trace mm -hmm. it. And, uh, Anyhow, but here's why it's important. Hofstadter was not a conservative. Hofstadter was a liberal, and liberals listened to him. He was a one of the leading liberals of his day, as a matter of fact. And uh, his, you know, his great student was another liberal, Christopher Lash. And uh, people listened to Hofstadter, and Hofstadter drove a wedge between liberalism and the working class. And this was just the beginning of that, right? In the old days, liberalism was always identified with the aspirations of working people. That's what liberalism was, you know, and it came from populism. And Hofstadter started to drive a wedge between liberals and, and the working class. And that continued and continued and continued till you get down to the present day where you've got, you know, 
the Democratic Party having basically turned its back on its previous identity. I mean, they're reversing course a little bit now, you know, with Joe Biden. But uh, you, you look at the Clintons, you look at Obama, you look at, you know, the who the Democratic Party is today. And they are Richard Hofstadter's creation. It's it's quite amazing. Yes. OK, well, that is interesting uh, because going back to the original uh, populist party, one of their planks was, and I had heard this speech because I, uh, when I was uh, in elementary school, I had a CD-ROM of famous speeches, and one of the speeches on the CD-ROM was the Cross of Gold speech. Yes. Uh, yeah. So I was familiar wow. with with that, but I had no idea what the context was. I just knew that speech, and I was like, "Wow, this guy really—he's fired up about this gold thing." <laughs> <laughs> so that's uh, a really very interesting uh so that was uh, there's a whole chapter in the book about about that that guy's name was was william jennings yes. bryan yes. he wasn't actually a populist he was a democrat mm-hmm. but he talked he was from nebraska and he which was a populist state and bryan talked like a populist and uh, the populists in nebraska and around the country really liked him he was the sort of left wing of extreme left edge of the democratic party mm-hmm. in 1896 and they go to have their convention. Just tell me when you want me to shut up, by the way, because I know you I know, you know, all this. <laughs> no, this is for this is for the people. We're, we're populists here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? the, the Democrats in 1890, the country's in a deep depression in the early 1890s. And there's been huge strikes. Eugene Debs, this enormous strike out of Chicago, the railroad right. strike. There, uh, there were other strikes as well. Uh, there was a march on the first ever march on Washington by uh, an army of the unemployed. The populists organized that. Uh, it was called Coxey's Army. All this stuff was going on. And um, the president of the United States is a Democrat. It's Grover Cleveland. And he is committed to the gold standard. And the gold standard, you know, this is how the currency was was based on gold. Uh, the mm-hmm. dollar was worth a certain amount of gold. And the problem with the gold standard is it was deflationary. Uh, so the, econ- the, the economy would grow, the population would grow, and the amount of dollars in circulation would not grow. And uh, this was extremely bad uh, for working people and farmers. And it also meant that you couldn't do any of the things that we expect government to do now, that they couldn't do any kind of, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, massive spending on, you know, deficit spending on, uh, you know, uh, internal improvements or road building or, or, or infrastructure, any of that. They couldn't do anything like that. They couldn't have a welfare system. You couldn't do anything with a gold standard. And so the populists wanted to replace the gold standard with uh, a silver standard. They called it free silver. And Brian, uh, here comes William Jennings Bryan. The Democratic Convention in 1896 is in complete turmoil. They have decided to toss out Grover Cleveland. They're not going to endorse their own sitting president. They decided they, they're turning against the gold standard. They don't want the gold standard. You know, it looks like it looks like complete radicalism. And then this guy sweeps the convention with this amazing speech about uh, this, about get doing, doing away with the gold standard. And he does it in this very, in this sense in which the, uh, you know, it, it's all about the working people versus the elite against the bankers, the working people against the, uh, you know, uh, East Coast uh, financiers. Uh, and that's what 
the, the silver standard versus the gold standard was supposed to be. And he sweeps the convention and the Democrats nominate this guy for president. He was 36 years old. Uh, you know, the youngest person ever nominated wow, by a I'm major. Six. What am I doing with my life? <laughs> <laughs> I know. Kind of, uh, and it kind of makes you feel a little insignificant. And and uh, and it's this amazing moment. And uh, the populist party sees this and they say, OK, we're going to uh, we're going to support him also. And so they throw in their support to the Democrats, to William Jennings Bryan and uh, the Eastern establishment press of this country goes absolutely berserk and uh this is all uh in in the people know i've got all these great cartoons from that from that period where they started denouncing brian in the most oh, extreme nice. way you know there's one where they depict him as satan oh my gosh <laughs> yeah there's uh they depict him as a as a uh, italian immigrant who has assassinated <laughs> lady liberty <laughs> oh my goodness I love, old time, I love old-timey editorial cartoons. They're the best. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, except when they're incredibly racist. <laughs> yes, exactly. And uh, uh, and they just they they just went they went all in on promoting this kind of public hysteria. You know about uh, they called him an anarchist and a repudiationist. They would uh, always link him with Debs. You mentioned Debs earlier. They yeah, they sure. uh, because uh, Debs had been a was a leading populist at the time. Uh, and so they they would always try to link Brian with Debs, et cetera, et cetera. And and they they beat him. The Republicans pulled out all the stops. Uh, they raised an enormous treasury, uh, by some respects the most money ever spent in a a presidential election. If you do it as a per cap on the per capita basis, the most money ever spent. It dwarfs what they spend today. And uh, they destroyed this guy. William Jennings Bryan, they were just like, we are going to go out and crush idealism in this country. (laughs) And they did it. it. And uh, they did it by the way they one of the the main ways they smeared him was with the word populist. They decided they redefined populist as meaning, um, you know, anarchy, mob rule, uh, you know, this sort of insane, you know, people rioting in the streets. Uh, populism had to be, you know, you, they would depict populists getting attacked by police. You know, the idea is that populists are the lower orders and they have to learn their place, you know, on and on and on like this. Mm. That was, I call that the democracy scare. This fear, this like great fear among the country's elites that the people were out of control. And the word they used for that was populism. Uh, and there's a, I've got a whole bunch of, by the way, if you go on my website at tcfrank.com, I've got a whole bunch of these illustrations up there from 1896. They're, they're quite incredible. They're so vicious. Mm. And what, what you see is this democracy scare. This, this happens again and again in American history. It happened again in the 30s when Roosevelt was president and the sort of elite of the country, uh, economists, big business, the press – uh, the l- sort of legal community came together to denounce Roosevelt in exactly the same terms. It was the people uh, were out of control. The people were, it was a mob the, you know, the new deal represented the mob. Uh, it was the lower orders demanding that they be, you know, that they be uh, uh, that, that, that rich people support them. Uh, all, even though they were supposedly unwilling to work, you see that again, and then you see it again with the in the 1950s with Richard Hofstadter and his friends. Only they reverse the politics of it, and now they say it's professional expertise 
that the people refuse to accept. It's not, you know, bankers and, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of the uh, business elite. It's the professional elite. And the problem with populism is that it doesn't respect this elite. So you see the same stereotype going up through the years. It had, it's completely wrong about what populism the movement actually was. But the stereotype grows more and more powerful until today, you know, it's just it's just natural. And they apply it to Donald Trump, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, John Hay was born uh, like 10 minutes from me in Salem, Indiana. Uh, so he's so, an, interesting, uh, an interesting figure. John Hay was uh, yeah. Lincoln. I've been, to, I've been to his museum, uh, oh, his childhood okay. home museum. Because Yeah, like yeah. I said, it was like in the next county over from where I grew up. So. <laughs> but here's a man, by the way, he followed this very interesting trajectory of a great – believer in democracy in mass democracy during the civil war you know he's private secretary to abraham lincoln really believed in the union cause during the civil war and then later on came to see or came to believe i should say that mass democracy was a problem because it allowed working people to vote and they working people are going to you know are always going to outnumber the John Hayes of the world. He somewhere along the way, by the way, he he became very wealthy. <laughs> you know about this, right? Mm-hmm. He married into a very wealthy family and decided that you know, uh, working class people were a problem. And he wrote uh, in 1896. He was a very loyal Republican. He wrote this. He the ultimate denunciation of populism. You know, he was he was an, again an amazing writer. His command of the english language is just like it's just wonderful to read but his, his politics just got uglier and uglier as he got older <laughs> mm. but anyway. yeah, look, yeah well i'm looking at your website now so i'm seeing these uh cartoons here so yeah i see that uh <laughs> the u.s credit woman has been stabbed to death on the steps of the u.s <laughs> treasury by <laughs> william jennings bryan of course <laughs> We've got the devil himself with the wings and all. Yeah. <laughs> Williams, Jennings, Bryant. Yeah, it's it's pretty extreme stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, a lot of those, those cartoons, by the way, um, as far as I can tell, have never been reproduced uh, mm. before. Mm. Uh, I, I went out and found them. There, there's uh, one of the things about this book that was really fun was uh, thanks. So I, I told you I went to graduate school and studied history, got a PhD right. in history. And I studied populism in graduate school, hmm. and it was it was not easy to do. <laughs> hmm. it, it, if you wanted to read, so populists had a lot of newspapers. Every small town in the Midwest had a populist newspaper, and if you want to read wow. those newspapers, it used to be very difficult to do. You had to get the microfilm. They had to send it to wherever you were located, and then you had to sit there and read it very, very slowly on a microfilm reader. And it was mm-hmm. really labor-intensive to study populism. And now all those newspapers are online. And uh, I was able to do the research for this. Uh, it, it was actually – you know. Uh, it was amazing how easy it was. But one of the things I was able to do was uh, get hold of back issues of these uh, political magazines from the 1890s. You know, they're very hard to come by in libraries. Mm. Uh, and But people are forever selling them on eBay. Mm. <laughs> so you, you just got – I was just went out there and bought a whole bunch of them and mm. found, all the, found all this stuff and was able to reproduce it. And, um, yeah, it's uh, it was – 
you know, the internet has really changed how you do research uh, in, a, in a good way, I suppose. Are these all like in the public domain now? Uh, yes. Like, yeah, oh, wow, copyright, that's amazing. There's got to be long expired from 1896. Yeah. yeah, there's so much beautiful art on in magazines and stuff. Oh, yeah. And then. believe Even me, the I, ads, I, you know, they were and all drawn by hand and colored. Mm. And mm-hmm. and uh, I'm just scratching the surface with the stuff that I that I put in here. I only I put in the most extreme examples. And a lot of the examples I put in there were famous at the time, like the mm-hmm. one of the one that shows Brian as Satan. <laughs> right. Every people were like, oh, I think you've crossed a line there. You know, that's going a little too far. That's a, uh, that's blasphemous, you know, <laughs> but, uh, uh, yeah, it was never reproduced anywhere that I was able huh. to find. But I was, I was, it, it was easy to track down the magazine that it appeared in. And, wow. That's really cool. Yeah. That reminds me, I've got a couple of look magazines from the sixties and seventies. Uh, oh, I, take love a look that at. I love yeah. that. Stuff. That was my first book was about the advertising industry in the 60s. Oh, cool. And the way you nice. uh, the way you do it back this when I wrote that book in the 90s, uh, no like TV commercials from the 60s were online. You know, that didn't YouTube mm-hmm. didn't exist. You couldn't look at something like that. So the way right. you re- you researched it was you got out life met life and look magazines mm. and just went through them. They were the great show place. Of American mm-hmm. advertising back then. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, you were ahead of your time then with the whole Mad Men thing. So. <laughs> uh, don't even don't even talk to me about that. That's still. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> sore subject. Yeah. <laughs> but um, well, uh, going back to the populists again, what else did they like stand for besides the gold thing? Like, what were their main tenets? And and throughout the book, you also say that they were falsely accused of racism and anti-Semitism, but you say that wasn't maybe as big of a deal as, as people made it out to be. Uh, right. So populists were obsessively focused on economic issues. Um, mm. So they were, they were by and large a farmer party. They came out of a group called the Farmers Alliance. And the whole program was to rescue farmers from this very bad situation that they were in. So they wanted a government program to give cheap loans to farmers. They were, they were to- farmers at the time were totally under the thumb of bankers, uh, you know, they could not escape their debt. It just got worse and worse every year. This is true in the Midwest and also in the South. And so farmers proposed a government program to uh, give uh, cheap loans to farmers, which that program, something like that actually exi- exists today. They wanted to fix the currency, as I mentioned before, to change the current, get off the gold standard. Mm-hmm. They wanted to nationalize the railroads. Mm. because the railroads were a monopoly so populism they hated monopoly so they were always trying to figure out ways to um, either regulate or nationalize or break up uh, monopolies Uh, and Mm -hmm. so they wanted to do that and that these and then they had a a bunch of other issues of of less uh, importance less significance one of the ones that's particularly important today is they were the first big national party that wanted uh, votes for women Mm. And they had, uh, unlike the Democrats and the Republicans at the time, they had a lot of women leaders. So here in mm. Kansas, here in Kansas, uh, the 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 sort of uh, 
preeminent leader of populism was a woman. She was like a this apparently a spellbinding speaker. There's no recordings of her or anything, but a spellbinding speaker who would go around the state telling farmers to raise less corn and more hell. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and so they they actually succeeded in getting uh, women's suffrage in several states, Colorado and Idaho. I think that was the populists that did that. Um, they on the uh, they were not particularly anti-immigrant. That's often applied to them, but they actually were not that. That's you can show that pretty definitively here in Kansas. You know, there were a lot of immigrants at the time, and the populists courted their vote. I mean, they tried really hard to win their vote. Uh, and, you know, they did. And there's all sorts of immigrants who were members of the pop, you know, who were populists and voted for it. And the 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 point that's really um, what's really awful is there the way they got caught up in the in the race issue in the South, mm. uh, because so they started out with this idea, which was very advanced for its day, that uh Black farmers and white farmers had the same interests in the South and should get together and, you know, and vote their interests. And there was a black there was a group of black populists uh, called the Colored Farmers Alliance. Hmm. And so th this was their initial proposal in the South was we're going to break with the Democratic Party, which was this you know monolithic racist structure in the South at the time. Hmm. We're going to break with the Democratic Party and we're going to set up this new party that will get the votes of, of poor whites and black farmers. And at the mm. time, in a lot of southern states, blacks could still vote. And this ended very badly. Uh, I don't I don't know if you've read that part of the book where I tell this story, but it's it's a famous story. It's incredibly awful. Um, the Democrats you know, faced with uh, being beaten by this third party. And in a lot of the Southern states, it looked like populism was going to be very powerful. So the Democrats are faced with this challenge. <clears throat> How are they going to beat it? And the way they beat it was by white supremacy. They rolled out the, what they called the white supremacy campaign. And it's just, again, this campaign of unbelievable racist hysteria hmm. uh, in in order to defeat populism. And in North Carolina, the only the only southern state where populism uh, came out on top was North Carolina. And in North Carolina, the Democrats uh, actually um, encouraged violence. It did. They they had a, you know, a, a, what do you call it? A, you know, campaign of, of lynching and murder to crush populism. And they did it. And when they when they were done, they, they actually shit. Excuse me. Oh, there's a podcast. I can say that, right? You can say anything you want, Thomas. Frank. They, 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 a, a, a mob of Democrats actually overthrew the elected um, government of a city in North Carolina, of Wilmington, North Carolina. And uh, uh, they called it a race riot, although it was just white Democrats going through the black parts of town shooting people. It was incredible, the stuff that they did. And when they were done, the Democrats prevailed. They got back in power and they um, took away the right to vote of black people hmm. and they and a lot of a lot of poor whites, too. And they crushed populism forever. And they did this in a lot of places in the South. This was a recurring theme in a bunch of dif different Southern states. And it wasn't in a lot of places, it wasn't because of populism per se. It was because populism had showed the Democrats that if they continued to let 
uh, blacks and poor whites vote, that they might something might happen, that these people might rise up against their system. Mm. And so that's where that's where uh, what they call disenfranchisement. That's where it came from. This is the most horrible, most horrible story. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And somewhere along the line, that uh, that story got lost and got forgotten and got turned upside down. And so instead, you have people like um, uh, what's his name in the 60s? Uh, uh, George Wallace, who's mm-hmm. just a, a sort of racist monster, the governor of Alabama. Mm-hmm. Some somebody decides that's that's the guy who represents populism. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And he's on the other side. He's the, he's mm-hmm. the bad guy, right? But the people are like, no, that's that's populism. Is is this guy, this this right wing white backlash figure from the late 1960s? And they 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 mm-hmm. called him a called him a populist uh, in the 1960s. This is a hundred years later, or almost 80 years later, I should say. And yeah, the the word got in completely inverted it's just mm-hmm. that we, we live in the strangest world yeah the word got turned on its head mm-hmm. well uh let's go forward in time a little bit to the 30s and talk about uh what happened with populism then because uh <laughs> you you basically describe uh in the lead up to the new deal how the you know the the elite just they threw everything but the kitchen sink at at fdr to like try to like stop this from happening uh, it kind of reminds me of the whole thing that's happening now uh, with the unemployment thing where it's like people get the extra $600 and it's like, well, we can't give this to them anymore. They won't want to work. They, it's exactly. like they're getting paid more exactly. now. It's like, well, hold on a second. Exactly. Maybe you should just pay them this all the time. Like, yeah, yeah. people can't yes. live. Like, yeah, same know. thing. But that's, uh, that's, so the arguments from the 30s. So like, yeah. part of it is the 30s are the high water mark of populism in America. The, if you go back and look at like Frank Capra movies or Orson Welles movies or, uh, you know, listen to popular music from the time, you know, or look at look at any kind of cultural, you know, ephemera from the 1930s, the sort of, uh, you know, what are the social realist novels or WPA murals or mm-hmm. it's extremely populist. It's all the sort of ideas of the People's Party about the nobility of the common man and farmers and, and workers getting together and all this stuff that was everywhere in the 1930s. And I, you know, there's all of these different politicians who embraced it, like the governor of Minnesota at the time, a guy called Floyd Olson, uh, a whole bunch of others. And but but the preeminent sort of representative of this sensibility was Franklin Roosevelt, who used this kind of uh, really powerful populist uh, uh, style in his speeches, uh, you know, talking about the nobility of ordinary people and the uh, uh, you know, the monstrousness of the bankers, the elites. Uh, and he did this, of course, to push a very populist program that was involved, as we all know, uh, uh, populist agricultural reforms, breaking up monopolies. Um, he didn't nationalize the railroads, but they started to regulate them. Uh, you know, do all basically the whole populist program. He, he comes right out of that uh, background. I mean, not personally, but but uh, intellectually and his, historians at, at the time in the 30s and 40s uh, very clearly drew the line between Roosevelt and populism. They're like, yeah, Roosevelt is coming right out of the you know populist tradition. They said this all the time in the 1930s. And then you have this. Uh, I mean, that's all forgotten today when, you know, uh, you know, again, people think it's Donald Trump. They think that's what the word means. <laughs> but. Mm-hmm. 
there was this <clears throat> backlash against Roosevelt that is absolutely fascinating to me. Again, the book is about not just populism, but about the people who hate it. And there were these um, sort of the first big right wing <clears throat> front groups in American history were set up in the 1930s to uh, defeat the New Deal. Uh, the main one was called the American Liberty League, and they actually had more uh, money than a political party. They had more money than the Republican Party, <laughs> mm. and they, they proceeded to uh, deluge the country and to do exactly what the Republicans had done in the 1890s, to uh, it, it, to encourage hysteria and deluge the country with these pamphlets and radio speeches and stuff like that, denouncing Roosevelt as a dictator, an autocrat. Um, mob rule. It's you know he was like Hitler. You know he was the uh, the the leader with his mob, his fanatical mobs, and then also the idea at the same time that the New Deal was supporting all these people who refused to work, uh, and that was the real problem of the Depression is that people refused to work, and we had to encourage, we had to make them work. Uh, they should they should not be trying to uh, you know to leech off of the rich by making the rich pay taxes, you know, soak the rich was the phrase at the time. And uh, the other element of this, again, this is a democracy scare, same as in the 1890s, a democracy scare. And the other element of it was the press. The press in this country despised Franklin Roosevelt in this in this way that, again, is very difficult to, to comprehend today. The Chicago Tribune every day during the campaign of 1936 would put at the on the top of, of the front page in small letters. Or maybe it was at the bottom. I forget now. I've got it photographed somewhere. But they would say you have X number of days to save your country, meaning to vote for the Republican candidate to, to get Roosevelt out of there. And they would just they attacked him in the most in the most extraordinarily vicious way. It was like what they did to to Brian in mm. 1896. And I, I include some of those cartoons in the book. Uh, they're they're well, they're hilarious now when you look back at them, because, you know, Franklin Roosevelt, that's he's a beloved figure. He's the man mm. on the dime. You know, he's he's the sort of founder of the welfare state in this country, you know, and of the re of, of, of reg, you know, regulation and all that. And they hated his guts. Mm -hmm. There's uh, amazing uh, quotes that I was able to find, again, thanks to the Internet, because all of the. American Liberty League stuff is now online. You can look it up very easily. You don't have to go to the library to do it. And uh, it was, I mean, these people opposing Roosevelt, again, this was the, the cream of American society, the very wealthiest people like the DuPont family, uh, you know, the, uh, all of the great industrialists, uh, all of the great corporation attorneys, all of the great economists. It was the... Um, you know, business and professional elite of this country unanimously despised this guy. And then the newspaper publishers as well. And you go back and read what they actually said about Roosevelt. Just saying they hated him is one thing. Go back and look at the substance of why they hated him. It's incredible. Mm. It's their, their hatred for ordinary people is just it's just poisonous they uh there's a lot of eugenics mixed in this stuff mm. uh you know that that ordinary pe the reason or people were poor was because they had you know they'd been selected by nature to be poor <laughs> it, was mm. their, it was in their genes there was one of these republicans was like you know we shouldn't let poor people reproduce because mm. if they if they do they will eventually be able to outvote us <laughs> 
<laughs> and oh ta- ta- take our stuff. And uh, I mean, it was just like it's it's incredible the stuff that went on uh, in the name of stopping uh, populism, stopping liberalism, mm-hmm. uh, racist, you know, openly racist uh, mm-hmm. stuff. And uh, of course, needless to say, it didn't work. <laughs> Roosevelt yeah. Roosevelt prevailed. Uh, yeah. As, I mean, as soon as people got hold of Social Security and exactly. Medicare, it was exactly. like, they, they, we're, sorry, we're not giving this up now. Yeah, right. <laughs> We've had a taste of it. Kind of it's good. Good. We kind of <laughs> well, that's like the stimulus checks are like, oh, man, we can't start giving people money. Can I just tell you, the one that drives me crazy is uh, universal health care. How come we don't have that? <laughs> we're, no, we're, in a, we're in a, you know, yeah, we're in a, a health crisis like we have never seen before in our in yeah. our history except for you know a hundred years ago and and we don't have universal health care what the hell you know i mean well skipping way forward in your book uh you know what a time for not bernie sanders to work out because like he would have been the perfect candidate for right now and i'm so uh upset that we missed our chance there with that because as you say at the end of the book he is the torchbearer of this you know actual real populism that we're not talking about the you know trump populism whatever that is okay what would you call that if not populism the trump populism would you just just demagoguery is that as far as it goes it it is demagoguery so i encourage people to use a different word for it now the word that i use i mean there's a bunch of different words, and some of them I'm gonna are, are very controversial. But the, uh, you say it, fascist. I I wouldn't say that. I'd say pre-fascist. pre-fascist. No, he's not. No, he's not. Uh, he's not. So a lot of these guys in the 30s, there were a lot of really scary demagogues in the 1930s, and the term that they would use for them, like they weren't like someone like uh, Father Coughlin was not a full-on fascist he was a he was a pre-fascist or william randolph hearst both of these guys played footsie with nazism and uh uh but they were not fascists themselves they were more like you know something on the road to fascism uh, the what i call trump that trump deliberately what makes trump interesting and what's ronald reagan before him and george bush and all of these guys richard nixon is that they deliberately use um uh, workerist language. They deliberately mm. use the language of populism uh, mm. for for to, to, for ends that are the opposite. I mean, you look at Ronald Reagan is the most extreme example, even more so than Trump. Uh, you know, Reagan. They wanted to, his administration. They wanted to bring back the gold standard, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it, but he did it while speaking while while talking about the ordinary people. How he was such great friends with the working class. Uh, you know, he's the one that that coined this stupid phrase, "Make America Great Again." Mm. So I call Trump and Reagan and Nixon um, uh, pseudo populists or fake populists, mm-hmm. or I mean, in a pinch, you could say right wing populists. But I don't think that's right because that implies that they're going at the same goal from a different angle. And Trump obviously is not going at the same goal. He said he was going to, but mm. he's done, he's done nothing of the kind. I mean, no, right. He's well, and, yeah. And so, and so these people in, uh, yeah, these people in Europe, I, I mean, I don't even know why they apply the term populist to them. They have nothing to do with the tradition of, you know, a farmer labor party, by the way, can I go off on an aside here? Please do. So when this whole, um, coronavirus started 
the pandemic started, you know, there's this whole narrative now in the Democratic Party and like the Washington Post that we have to trust experts. And our, our great, the great mistake that we're making here is that we're not trusting experts. And that instead, we're mm -hmm. listening. We're, you know, the, uh, populism is killing us, right? Because populism is the ideology that doesn't trust experts. Well, that's not exactly true. The original populists actually uh, did trust certain kinds of experts. But I went back and I, it made me ask this question. What would a populist healthcare system look like? And so I went back in 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 history to you know I always when I want to answer a question like that I always go digging in in history and I, I found the answer. It's the, you're not going to believe this. So it's it's universal healthcare of course. It's Bernie Sanders mm. you know single payer plan, and there were all of these. Um, in the in the 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s, all of these sort of latter-day populist types who proposed universal health care schemes, unions proposed them. There was a doctor in Oklahoma, a very radical doctor, who proposed a system for his community, and they did it. It was him and the farmer, local farmers union set up a system in their town. Uh, and then the most interesting thing I discovered when I went to do this research is that you know populism died out. The populist party died out in America in the 1890s, but uh, it didn't die out in Canada. It kept going in the northern, you know, the, the plains, you know, populism was big in the Dakotas, in Minnesota, in uh, Kansas, obviously, Nebraska, and it also caught on in Saskatchewan and Manitoba. And, um, and in Alberta, the, the plains provinces in Canada, and it kept going there, and they actually won. There was a party in Saskatchewan, that was directly descended from the U.S. Populist Party, and uh, they were called the uh, oh, what the Cooperative Commonwealth Federation. And you know what they invented? Mm. Universal health care. Wow! It, it caught on, and they when they introduced it in 1962. Now we're talking. This is the these descendants of populism. In 1962, they introduced it in Saskatchewan, and the experts, the uh, Canadian doctors, went on strike. So it was the war of populism versus the experts. Mm. And, and the, uh, uh, it was like Ayn Rand, right? The 1% went on strike. Mm -hmm. And the, uh, the populists won. And all over Canada, they embraced this system. And that's where Canadian health care comes from. So it's a really weird roundabout byproduct of populism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the original 1890s populism. Damn, I, I, we, we could use that here. We could use a taste of that right now. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. It'd be the perfect time for it. Um, and, you know, going back to, uh, well, we, we've, we've, we've kind of gone up to the, the 30s and, and now the, the next time period that, that you talk about kind of was the 60s. And I really thought that uh, the MLK quote that you included about eating Jim Crow was uh, yeah. was very apt. Um, yes, uh, another so like, another yeah. great wordsmith, Martin Luther King. He, you know, it, there's, there's all of these wonderful people yeah. who often written about populism. And I was surprised to learn that Martin Luther King uh, not only uh, he used the word populist, and but he used it correctly. He did not use it in the Richard Hofstadter sense. He used it in the correct actual historical uh, sense of the term mm -hmm. and um, and talked about how populism was beaten in the in the Deep South. The story that I told you earlier uh, about how they, you know, the disenfranchisement, that whole awful story. And he said, that's where Jim Crow came from. And he's, he was clinically correct. And what's fascinating to me is he said that 
in a fa very famous speech, you can watch it on YouTube, at the conclusion of the march from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama. It was in 1965. It was about a week before I was born mm. when he, he gave that speech. And the funny thing is, is the man, he, it was a wonderful speech. You know, you can see it on YouTube. Go back and look at it. He talks about the populist movement and how yes. they were beaten, you know, clearly drawing a historical connection between the movement he was leading, the civil rights movement and the old populist movement. And a lot of other people drew that connection as well. A bunch of other writers in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. The irony, history is so ironic is that the man who was sitting in the state capitol building at that moment, the asshole segregationist governor of Alabama, George Wallace, was mm -hmm. by the end of the decade, that was the guy everybody was saying was the populist, not Martin Luther King and his and his friends and advisors, but the, their arch enemy. So, yeah, and it's just like when when you don't have anything else, if you can look down on someone else, that's sometimes enough, I guess. <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's absolutely. Yeah, you're, you're talking about King's the famous quote about yeah. Jim Crow. Yeah, well, they, they, or they, I, they, I think Lyndon Johnson also had a quote like, "If you can make the lowest white man feel like he's better than the lowest black man, then that's something." Exactly. You know what I mean? And and, and that's what King was saying. That's how they beat. Yeah. Populism is about solidarity across races, you know, working class solidarity across races. So if working people from all different um, races and walks of life get mm -hmm. together, they can bring about, you know, a democratic economy. That is my nutshell definition of populism. It's real simple. Uh, and King understood that and tried to build that kind of movement himself. And the response to that is, no, 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 you know, we're going to divide you by by race and white people. Mm -hmm. Here's this system where, you know, you may not be able to afford food. <laughs> you may not be able to afford to get on a railroad train. But if you could, you'd get to ride in the white the, the car for white people. Mm -hmm. You know, so there you go. And uh, and and that was a strategy that defeated it. And so King understood that those are the two, you know, those are the two poles of our political life. Yeah. And I, I think you make an important point in the book, too, that um, near the end of his life, MLK was very involved in economic issues. And he was definitely uh, moving more in that uh, range because it was like like you had the quote from him about if you can't what's what's the good of sitting in a lunch counter if you can't afford a hamburger and a coffee or whatever you know it's like if you, yeah. you can't do anything uh, while you get there you know bfd you know it's like, exactly <laughs> exactly and and so by the end of his life yeah he was trying to put together a movement for uh, a march a march on washington of, mm -hmm. of poor people and uh it didn't it you know he died before that you know he was he was he was murdered yeah while while at a a strike a strike of trash mm -hmm. collectors in memphis mm -hmm. Yeah. While he was out there, you know, showing solidarity with those guys and leading, you know, trying to help them out. He, right. he what we don't again, another there's all of these sort of forgotten angles to American history. And uh, and by the way, I have to get off the phone here man, and cook cook dinner for me. Oh, OK, absolutely. We can yeah, sure. it's, we're, we're in Kansas, so I'm going to be firing up a steak on the grill. And oh, no doubt. That's awesome. <laughs> and, uh, you know, washing it down with a little bourbon and all that stuff. Very, very populist uh, dinner. But, exactly. Uh, you're just a man of the people, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but but, uh, but uh, King was uh, was very close with a lot of labor leaders, uh, which I did not know, mm -hmm. uh, and spoke at unions all the time. And the unions also uh, supported him and helped him out, and felt and were very close to him at the same time. And now we, you know, we look back. Uh, 
well, anyhow, it's all come apart. The wheels have really come off the liberal bus uh, since then. Okay, well, one more question about the book, and then I have one more question after that, and then I'll let you go. Uh, so you had to turn this in before you knew it was going to happen with the election, obviously. Um, so now that it, it isn't Bernie Sanders, it's it's Joe Biden, uh, yeah. and, it, and it appears that the Democrats are taking much the same tack they took in 2016 by going with the centrist uh, yeah, but Biden, candidate, but you see this turning out differently this time. Like, I think so. I don't see how uh, mm-hmm. because because of the pandemic. So the pandemic, I had to turn this in, and then the pandemic hit, right. and I actually I actually got it back in galleys so I could, you know, make a ref talk about uh, you know uh, make some reference to this pandemic and universal mm-hmm. healthcare. But I don't see how a man, you know, just in sheer practical terms, how a president. Uh, you know, bungles a crisis the way Trump has done and and gets reelected. I don't see how that's possible. You've got unemployment is over 10 percent right now. Mm. People are desperate. They're going to I mean, companies are going going out of business. All these restaurants have gone under. You're going to see, you know, uh, this is this is a terrible, terrible time. And then not not to mention, you know, the police in Minneapolis (laughs) murdering a guy in broad daylight. You know, Mm. what the hell? Mm. I don't see I don't see how. He gets reelected no matter who the Democrats nominate. Now, Biden is a centrist and has has made has done a lot of really awful things in his time. Uh, But Biden is also uh, definitely has a populist side to him. He has a oh, he he is respectful of working people, which, you know, put it this way. We got to wrap this up. Hillary's biggest gaffe was the deplorables remark. Mm-hmm. And the reason it was a gaffe was because uh, white working class people thought it was aimed at them. They 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 are ve- you know very alert to any kind of expression of contempt like that. They already suspected that Hillary um, disdained them, regarded them with disdain, and that that comment, even though she didn't mean it that way, seemed to uh, uh, nail that down. That is a mistake that Joe Biden will never make. He's so mm-hmm. he's. He's very sensitive to issues like that. Now, he's been dreadful on on like mass incarceration. This is this is the guy. If you want to blame any Democrat for mass incarceration, it's him. You know, and you'll write down the list, you know, the trade agreements, the uh, the the bankruptcy bill and the Bush administration. Oh, my God. This is all Biden. Yeah. Ninety four crime bill. Sure. Yeah. But he's uh, it. He is at least in in rhetorically. He comes across as a respectful and uh, a, a, a guy that you'd like to be friends with. Let's put it that mm-hmm. way. So I yeah. don't I don't think he will suffer the same fate as Hillary. But who knows? It's you know, maybe Trump will pull this pull off a miracle between now and then. And the coronavirus mm. will go away. <laughs> the economy will recover. But I don't see it happening. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, last question. I always ask this. What music you've been listening to lately? Uh, just before I picked up, we were listening to Duke Ellington. I've got, I'm, I, I'm introducing my dad to Spotify and you can, it's, it's like the research I'm telling you about, you can find anything on Spotify. Mm. And so I'm, I listen to a lot of that early jazz and, um, big, big band stuff. I love Count Basie. I love Benny Goodman, uh, Artie Shaw, but, uh, yeah, we were listening to Duke Ellington right before you called Cool, cool. I've been listening. Actually, it's funny you say that. I've been listening to Jelly Roll Morton lately. Oh, she's <laughs> awesome. Yeah, the, the pianist from back then. Yes. Yeah. 
I discovered, I, heard... I mean, I love Spotify, but uh, I, I, I don't particularly like the what's happening to artists, but I love that I can look up anything. <laughs> yeah, there's all of these, good. there's all of these pianists <laughs> who worked in the medium of the player piano. Mm, you know about yeah. this? And they would write player, they would write music specifically for the player piano. Anyhow, we'll talk about I that. Had a, I, had a play, I had a player piano when I was a kid. But anyway, go on. Uh, we'll, <laughs> we got to We got to talk again. Uh, you should come back on the podcast sometime. Hey, Thank anytime, you for doing this. Anytime. Absolutely. Uh, great. Uh, I wish you uh, good health and uh, tell your family I said hello and uh, <laughs> I'll talk to you soon. All right. You got it, man. Right, bye bye. Welcome to The Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our 170th episode, our guest is Thomas Frank. Thomas Frank is the author of Listen, Liberal, Pity the Billionaire, The Wrecking Crew, and What's the Matter with Kansas? 
a former columnist for the Wall Street Journal and Harper's. Frank is the founding editor of The Baffler and writes regularly for The Guardian. He lives outside Washington, D.C. His new book, The People Know, A Brief History of Anti-Populism, was published Tuesday. And now on to the show.